Welcome back to Biblical Book Review. I'm Kevin. I'm Alec. And I'm George. We are so happy you are joining us for today's study. Last week, we wrapped up chapter 18, long one, two in a row, but this week we're back to normal. A.B. Bruce has found his pace again. Chapter 19, what does it have to offer, George? Well, in the Gospel of John, uh, there's an an account that uh, John remembers, and he goes back in his memory, and he says, you know, the first time that the Gentile nation was accounted for by Jesus, there's several times where he has little interactions here and there, but there's a particular group of men that come to Jesus through two of the apostles and they say we want to see Jesus and so it's in John chapter 12 where Greeks come to Philip and to uh, Nathaniel uh, and they say we want to see Jesus yeah I like these accounts that Jesus has with you know the Gentiles because guess what I'm a Gentile and so are you you guys are all Gentiles so this is kind of cool to see Jesus interact with Gentiles I feel like too much today, we read the scripture and we put ourselves in with Israel. Like, that's how we view ourselves as part of Israel. And we got to be really careful with that. Like, we're reading the Old Testament and then we're reading the New Testament. I mean, up to this point, we're not God's people yet. We're going to be. There's a plan for us, but we're not there yet. And so in this particular case, Greeks come to two of the disciples and they say, okay, we want to see this guy. And it wasn't just in passing, just out of idle curiosity, because of Jesus' answer. Jesus' answer is, is deep. And it's interesting to think that these guys probably uh, were proselytes into the Jewish religion. They're there uh, in the Jewish community. Even though they're Greek people, they come in and they've been uh, brought into the Jewish faith. They've noticed something unique about the Son of God, and they want a close-up interview. They want to have a relationship with this guy, and they come through his uh, disciples that are that are closest to him. Now, it's interesting to think that Jesus, when when he is, you know, coming in contact with individuals outside uh, of the Jewish community, he still maintains. Uh, A. B. Bruce describes it this way: his uh, devotion to his Father's will, his faith in the future spread of the gospel, and his lively hope of a personal reward and glory. And so he has this in his mind that he is doing the will of God, and because it's not just for the Jewish nation, it's going to be for the Gentiles as well, this is a thrilling experience for our Lord. He really relishes this concept because we're told in the first chapter of John that he came to his own but his own didn't receive him. His own rejected him. And that must have been heartbreaking, obviously. But here he says it's not just for the Jews. It's going to be also for the Gentiles. And these particular individuals, these, from, these individuals from Greece, uh, he is seeing the potential. And like Kevin mentioned, that includes all of us on this side of, of the big blue wet thing. <laughs> yeah, and, and it, it's always, you know, it, I, I see... God's plan, as he's revealed it in Scripture, Gentiles were always a part of the plan. Uh, We're not like an afterthought or these types of things, but the Jewish nation, obviously with their prejudices and and different things that they had against anybody other than a Jew, would have seen these Gentiles as, "Eh, they're not acceptable. But Jesus is not like that. 
He understands it's always been a part of the plan, and he's excited almost to have these guys come up and ask this question. The the Jews are, uh, as John uh, says in the gospel, they, they rejected him, <laughs> and Jesus knows that he's going to be rejected, and he's looking towards his, his, his death where the Jewish leaders and the Jewish communities, they're going to chant, crucify him. It's all going to be this, it's a terrible event, and here's a couple of guys from the Gentile. They're not even a part of God's chosen people, as the Jews would see it, are genuinely seeking and truth-seeking in Jesus, and you can just see the joy uh, in Jesus' response, and uh, it's just a it's a great event and, and kind of a heartwarming event there for, for Jesus, looking towards a, a solemn kind of death uh, that he's going towards, and this is kind of a bright spot here. Yeah, these guys were committed, and you know that they had a zeal about them. To become a Jew later in life, to have to go through that as men, circumcision, I mean, they were committed. There was no turning back. They knew they were seeking God, and then if they have that type of fervor to be able to go through with that, then they're going to be full. Like, you know, the people you get around that are just absolutely just exuding zeal and passion and love for God— that's what I envision when I think of these guys. Yeah, and I, I really like how uh, A.B. Bruce kind of talks about them here. And he says, We do right then to regard the Greek strangers as earnest inquirers. They were true seekers after God. They were genuine spiritual descendants of their illustrious countrymen, Socrates and Plato's, whose Plato, whose utterances, written or unwritten, were one long prayer for light and truth one deep unconscious sigh for the sight of Jesus. They wanted to see the Savior, not with the eye of the body merely, but above all with the eye of the Spirit. I mean, that really sums up where they were coming from. And like we just we mentioned kind of offhand here, and maybe Bruce goes into it, this idea of we know they were earnest seekers because of Jesus' response. If it was just kind of a Oh, we're curious about these miracles or what's going on around here. It wouldn't have got the kind of response that Jesus gives, but he gives a really genuine response. And there's a there's a parable and there's a lesson and there's all sorts of great uh, uh, lessons that we can learn from what Jesus has to say to these men. And we know you came from your kid's playroom because you said Plato. <laughs> <laughs> so when the Greeks come to Jesus, they have this spiritual eye set, you know, this, this mindset that is focused on one thing. They wanted to find him. And Jesus is going to use this uh, uh, inquiry from these two, or these, these Greeks, he's going to use this to teach about his death. And it's fascinating to think that we can look at the death of Christ and be thrilled to know that he died Generally speaking, uh, we are saddened, we are grieving at the death of a loved one. But in this case, we look at the death of Christ, it is a, it's a paradox because, yes, we grieve for the, the, the pain and the suffering that he went through, but we, we love the fact that he did that because it, it offers us an opportunity or an avenue to have our sins removed. And so it's a, this paradox of the death of Christ and one death is going to provide this in, this increase in the kingdom. And you think about uh, when he came to uh, the, the woman at the well, that Samaritan woman there, kind of a crossbreed, a Jew-Gentile crossbreed there, uh, he was looking at the harvest, and he said, it's white unto harvest. 
and now he's looking at these Greeks, some others that are outside the the realm of the uh, Jewish uh, you know kingdom. He's looking at these guys, and he's saying, not only is the, is it ripe under harvest, but we're going to sow in all these places. We're going to put the seed of the gospel in every place, and this has to thrill him because these were actual true seekers of God. And so when he thinks of his death, it's going to give him that that extra uh, foundation for his faith to, to say, I'm going to f- continue on this mission. I'm going to do the will of God because the harvest is there. It's ripe, and I'm just going to continue to sow the seed. Yes, to the Jews, and we're going to do that first, but it's also to the Gentiles. Yeah, and we know that the the apostles, the, the disciples that were following Jesus really struggled with this, and they struggled with this even uh, well after uh, the death of Jesus, uh, this idea of the Gentile world being acceptable uh, to God. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a hard thing for them to get past. And even in this story here, we get Philip has been approached by these guys, and he almost has to get like a, a second opinion <laughs> from, from Andrew and has to go to Andrew and say, uh, should we bring these guys to Jesus? I mean, they're Gentiles, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And, and he has to kind of get a second opinion, and, and Andrew obviously, yeah, let's let's go. And so they, they go together and bring uh, these two, uh, these these Gentiles to, to Jesus. But it's almost, you know, you can see the kind of prejudice already just kind of ingrained in them uh, because that's how they, that's how they were. Uh, and it was a very difficult hurdle for them to get over. And many of uh, our New Testament books are written with this kind of perspective of the, the unity and the melding of the body of the Jewish nation and the, uh, the, G- the Gentile world that are uh, unified in Christianity. Uh, it's just a struggle. And the, the comfort that these Gentiles must have received from Jesus' response here is incredible. And like we were talking about this, this paradox of I'm, I'm going to die, but it's going to cause such great increase. And how much um, just joy and, and hope that it would have instilled in these Gentile brethren here uh, is, is incredible. And when I think about the, the 12 at this time, it must have been a challenging time for them because Jesus keeps talking about his death, right? They don't want him to die. They're still holding on that. They want to protect him. He's very popular. He's healing people, raising people from the dead. Everyone's coming to talk about Jesus. So they're kind of, I think they're like the filter of who actually is getting through and in. They're trying to vet people to make sure that no one's going to assassinate Jesus. They're very afraid of that. They're very afraid of losing their Savior and I, I'm assuming that a lot of people were coming constantly trying to get close to Jesus. So the fact that they these guys came across as actual truth seekers just speaks volumes to them. And so we go back in the account of John and his gospel, and we see in the first uh, few chapters there, the first chapter where uh, the initial response of Philip, Philip goes and gets Andrew or gets Nathaniel, and they they come together and they understand something about Jesus. When, when Philip found Nathanael, he said this, he said, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so Philip is an inquirer. He is one that wants to answer, wants to ask questions and seek for answers. He's looking for this one. He 
knows what it says in both the law and the prophets, and he's making careful search for Jesus. And then when he finds him, he goes and gets Nathaniel. And then later in John chapter 14, he says, uh, just show us the Father. That's, that's going to be good enough for us when Jesus is saying, I'm about to leave, and I'm the way, the truth, the life, all of this. And Philip still has that, that uh, uh, sense of in- inquiry where he's like, I'm, I'm looking for and I'm wanting to see exactly what you're talking about. And so, of course, because his name is Greek in, in uh, nature, he is approached by these guys, uh, and then he takes that information to to Andrew, and we always see Andrew bringing somebody to Jesus, and so they together bring this inquiry to Jesus, and Jesus is looking at this spiritual mindset of these Greek, these Gentile people, and their open-mindedness, and it's like, okay, there's there's something about the entire Gentile world that can be summed up in this in this mindset, and so this Seeking after God is so important, and even up into the 21st century. Uh, we, we teach a class in the jail here in Fort Worth, uh, and it's our search for God. And there's individuals that are still seeking God. And so always pay attention to those individuals that are looking for the Master. And don't be afraid to bring them to Jesus. Bring them and introduce them, just like Philip just like Andrew, and just like these other individuals who have always brought people to Jesus. Hey, really, that's our, our only goal, is to bring them to Jesus. He does it. We don't save people. He saves people. we got to get them to him. And if they're already looking, then that's easy. Here, here he is, right here. And then the answer, you know, when, when they come, it's fascinating to see the master teacher. And he looks into the hearts and minds of these individuals And he says, a grain of wheat must die in order for it to produce much fruit. Death and increase may go together. And the crucifixion, as he goes on to say in in the end of chapter 12, the crucifixion is going to be the secret to this future power that Jesus has, the cross. And whenever we even say the word, the cross, Everybody, I don't care what culture you're from, I don't care where, what country you live in, it doesn't matter. If you say the word cross, instantly people think of Jesus. That symbol that you can wear on your, on your neck as a, as a piece of jewelry or maybe in your earrings if you're a woman. It's like all these things, the cross. It's this symbol of power, and we understand it. And it's interesting that these Greeks are taught that lesson that day. Death can, and in this case, will provide increase in this kingdom of God. Well, the way he puts it, it's essential. And he isn't talking about necessarily physical death for us, but a, a death of our selfishness or our, to ourselves. And if we were to try to seek life, we would lose it. And if we want to gain life... We have to sacrifice it for him. And that's his lesson to these Gentiles in a nutshell. We're going to get into it a lot more. But it's interesting how we think of life, we have to have the death first. That's the, that's the part of this one that I think is pretty cool and how he gets into that and the analogy of it. 
Yeah, and A.B. Bruce points it out, you know, it's it's not in spite of the death, but it's in a virtue of the death. Uh, it's not something that, oh, this is God's secondary plan and he can make it work uh, if he has to. No, this was this is God's plan. Uh, this death is required, but Jesus is looking forward and saying, this death is going to provide so much increase. It's going to provide so much more than just this physical death uh, that is going to be terrible. It's going to be horrible, and he's looking forward in that future, but he's seeing in these Gentiles' hearts and minds that increase starting. Uh, and it's it's a beautiful picture that I believe that Jesus is seeing uh, throughout all of time uh, and seeing the, the increase that his death is going to provide in faith. Uh, and to us, and especially to the disciples here, it have been just this such a strange paradox, like we said. No way can death provide increase. But he uses such a such a beautiful example with the grain, because we know, like, how do you how do you get more grain? Well, you you plant the seed in the ground. It has to literally go down and, and into the ground and die, uh, essentially, and then more fruit is produced from there. And so you have this reality, this uh, this parable that describes what's happening. Uh, to Jesus here shortly with his death and the future increase. And by his voluntary willingness to endure this suffering, he goes on to say, and when I am lifted up from the earth, it will draw all men to myself. And so it's not just the Jews, it's all men, all men and women every society, every culture, every language, every country. And he says, when I'm lifted up, and of course, that's kind of a double, a double meaning there where he's lifted up on the cross, literally, uh, and for everyone there in the city of Jerusalem to walk by and, and as they say, shake their heads and just, I can't believe it's happening. The women at the foot of the cross, he's lifted up. But he's also maybe thinking of when he is ascending back to the Father. I remember the disciples looking into the sky and watching him disappear. I often think of a, uh, a helium balloon. We used to get those for the kids, you know, at those different restaurants, and we'd say, no, don't let go. When we get outside, and of course, Alec would, <laughs> and then we'd watch it disappear, and just, there goes that balloon, and pretty soon you can't see it anymore. It's so far into the atmosphere, you lose sight of it. And just imagine Jesus ascending when he's lifted up into heaven he says i'm gonna go and prepare a place for you and so this death has to occur in order for him to be lifted up and then much fruit notice he says all men how many all men and it's like okay that's a massive group and without his death that will not occur and he would have all believe and be saved. I think Peter would even mention that in his writings some 30 or 40 years after the event of the cross, he would write something to that effect. And in First Peter, he would say, uh, God's patient doesn't want any to be lost. He wants all to be saved. He wants everyone with him. And that's what Jesus' goal, his ultimate goal is to bring much fruit into the kingdom of heaven. Of course, it would take Peter 30 years to get on board with it. You know, <laughs> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah, but I, I have a quote here from Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. 
And that's how we have to think about this. We see this, this analogy as Jesus dying to bear the fruit, to give us the chance for all men to be saved. Now it's our turn to die to ourselves in order to bear fruit. And like Jim Elliot says, we're stupid if we don't do it, basically. Yeah, the death is a condition for fruitfulness, as A.B. Bruce would describe it there. Uh, it's a requirement. Jesus had to die, and we have to die to ourselves. He just got done teaching his, his disciples this idea of this self-sacrifice, this cross-bearing mentality, all of these things going down what it's going to be a requirement for us, but it's a source of future glory. It's a source of uh, God's perfect plan in motion. Uh, and like, like we've said many times, but to our human wisdom, it seems ridiculous. You have to die? What? Uh, you have to be lifted up? You have to go away? Uh, what are you talking about? But under godly wisdom, it is his, his future power uh, is on display here. And the concept of death and increase, it's applied across the board. I think Kevin mentioned this, and we can kind of dig a little deeper here into this idea of our death. We uh, recently had a baptism out here, and this young man came uh, to his senses, and he said, I need to be baptized. I need to be immersed into the death of Christ. I need to have the blood of that sacrifice applied to my sin. And I want God to do the work in my baptism. And we're looking at this concept of, of dying to self. And we bury the old man. And that is the extent of our, of our death in Christ. And then we're raised to walk in newness of life. And I believe, I love how A.B. Bruce kind of sums that up there. He says, in the long run, the measure of a man's power is the extent to which he is baptized into Christ's death. And as paradoxical and as almost illogical as that sounds, death is a means of increase. And you think about, if, for those of you that have become Christians, those of you that have put to death the old self, think about the increase, think about all the fruit that has come from that decision. And you think about that. You go back in your history and you start looking at the different times that fruit has been increased because of your decision to die to self. And we've lost count. Some of us have lost count of all the different places and all the different influences and all the different people. And it's like, yep, that's what happens. And death was required not only of our Savior, but of ourselves. And I love how he says, to the extent that we're baptized into, his Christ, into Christ's death, that's the measure of our power. It's not my doing, it's the power of Christ's blood. And that death has produced massive increase, personally and globally. And you think about that just for a sec. How much fruit has there been since the death of Christ? And it is an enormous number, many from the Jewish nation and many from the Gentile nation. And the combination of it, we go to Ephesians, we see that the barrier is broken down. We see that that's because of Christ's death. And all of us are united into his body, into that one body. 
And it's because of this marvelous death and it has produced the increase. Yeah, sometimes I think we need to check our perspectives on these things. Uh, we see dying to self and selflessness. And when we actually get to it, like we talk about it now in the podcast or in a class or whatever, we're like, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. But then when it actually happens, sometimes we get bummed out. Like, man, why do I have to do this? Why, I mean, this is, this is a bummer to be having to do whatever it is, is in your life where you're having to die to self, to glorify Christ to others. But we need to look at it as, and we get to do that. We are a part of the body now. And that is a privilege of ours to be able to be selfless to be able to bear our crosses, as Luke would say, daily. But do we think about that? Do I wake up and like, well, what cross am I bearing right now? How am I dying to self today? How am I helping the kingdom and others in Christ? Because I want to do that. Not the, well, I guess if it comes along, I'll do it. But actually seeking it, I think, is the thing we need to work on. I know I do. Yeah, I agree. And I'm... I'm going to be preaching a, a a sermon on or a a funeral sermon here pretty soon, and as Christians, you know, we we look forward to eternity. Uh, we look forward to our our death uh, essentially, uh, because it's it's the final realization and our our glorified state that has been promised to us. Uh, but there are many in the world that don't have that reality. Uh, they believe death is the end. Uh, there is nothing else. And without Christ, that's true. If you don't have Christ, death is the end. Uh, and I'm not saying that uh, you won't live eternally and there's, there's punishments and all those types of things, but that's it. There's nothing to look forward to. But with Christ, there is something to look forward to. There is fruit. There is growth. There is something better. And Jesus is seeing that here on a physical sense, in a, in a personal sense, with his personal death. But then he's looking forward in the future and then looking at us as we are dying to self. And then when we ultimately do physically die, we have the glorification that has been promised by our Savior, because we have confessed with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. We've uh, responded in obedient faith and, and put him on in baptism and joined him in his death. And the greatest part about in, in Romans chapter 6, when, when Paul goes into this, we have to die to self and all of this death has to take place. The greatest aspect of that is we don't stay dead. <laughs> Jesus is resurrected. Uh, and it's something that we celebrate Every Sunday, we, we celebrate, we remember Jesus' death, his burial, and most importantly, his resurrection. He came up out of the grave so that we too can follow him out of the grave. Uh, we don't have to stay dead. Uh, and so there's, there's huge benefits uh, for being in Christ. And this idea, this concept of conquering death and and Jesus can see all of this taking place and then these gentiles approach him and they're they're passionately truthfully seeking him and he he can see all the gentiles in the hearts of of these these gentiles that are approaching him and it's just you can see the the passion and the and the joy in Jesus' response uh, and teaching on this and and the gospel message and the plan of God being fulfilled in real time uh, here in Scripture. I mean, it's just a beautiful, uh, beautiful part. I'm glad that John <laughs> recorded it for us so that we have we have it. 
And as, as a stamp of approval, this only occurs a few times in the Gospels. There's a voice from heaven, <laughs> and the Father speaks verbally, and Jesus asks this in his prayer, Father, glorify thy name. And their voice from heaven declared, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And the multitude, therefore, who stood by and heard it, said it was thunder. Another said an angel has spoken. And it's fascinating to think that here's a stamp of approval. God-fearing, God-seeking Gentiles, these Greek individuals, came to the disciples looking for Jesus. And Jesus teaches with this inquiry a whole series of lessons on his death, burial, and, as Alec mentioned, the most important is resurrection. Don't stay dead. That's, a great, that's great advice. And so here's, here's what God thinks of it. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Boom. I mean, that is amazing to hear it from heaven, from God himself. And so here's the stamp of approval, not just to the Jews, but also to the Greeks. Here we go. And it's going to include the world. It's universal in its entire uh, aspect. And we have to look at Mary's anointing. You know, you go back a chapter, we look at how Mary came and anointed Jesus. We look in the next chapter, we see something about the destruction of Jerusalem. But here, God makes his stamp of approval. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Amen. What are you saying to that? Yeah, God has spoken. <laughs> yeah. like there's there really isn't a whole lot to, to add to that. It's just that's it. That's what we have to look forward to. It's just it's I'm just so happy that there was that death and it brought fruit not just to Israel but to all men. And that we are a part of that. We are Gentiles, but now we are Christ's you know, followers, we are God's children. We are a part of the kingdom and we just died us off. That's how we get it. Yeah. And again, easier said than done. Yes. Very <laughs> uh, easy. But uh, we, you know, it is, it is a requirement. And this is one of the, the hardest things to, to get across to people is this idea of we must die to self. You must repent. Uh, you must stop sinning against God. There, there's all these things that we must do Yes, we, it, the, the salvation is a free gift that we received from God, but there are some things that we must do as followers, but the benefits are so enormous. They are out of this world. <laughs> uh, it's, it's an incredible uh, realization, and this first fruits of the Gentiles here, uh, it, it, it should hit home to all of us uh, that are not Jews, uh, which I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm a Gentile. Uh, and so Jesus speaking directly to Gentiles and God having a plan for me, uh, and it's just it's humbling, and but it's also incredibly joyful uh, to hear in Scripture God's plan for me. We leave you with these questions. Jesus said that doing the Father's will is more important than life. How important is it for you to do the Heavenly Father's will? Why does one have to die in order to bear fruit? What crosses are you currently bearing for his namesake?
Thank you so much for joining us for this week's study. Thank you.